BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey everyone, Yas here and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends and don't forget to get in touch guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter at the coaches net. Once again, that's at the coaches net. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey, guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Scott Livingston. Good afternoon. Good morning, Scott. Which is it? It's a little early afternoon, so we're uh, (laughs) over here in Canada. (laughs) Good, good. Scott. Just before we get into the real thick of it, I'm really interested and and excited to get into this one with you. Um, Just a brief insight, background around who you are and what you do. Um, I'm, um, as in Canada, an athletic therapist and strength conditioning coach. Um, Some people call them athletic trainers, have been professionally for most of my career. I've been in the human performance industry for 35 years now. Um, I've worked in pretty much every kind of environment. I worked in private practice, university athletics, professional sport and professional ice hockey in Canada. Worked uh, with a lot of Olympians, uh, built my own brick and mortar gym. And now um, my, my sort of where I hang my hat professionally is on uh, a system that my wife and I teach called reconditioning, which is a blended um, model of bringing therapy and performance training together in one sort of operating system. So now most of what I do is teach that and or uh, consult on um, hard to fix injury cases uh, with athletes that are broken. I love that. Um, and I, I really want to delve deeper into that. And part of the, you know, part of the reason why I've got you, because I think it's really important, for instance, in my uh, field, which is obviously football coaching, soccer coaching, as you may know it, um, we're starting to really move on leaps and bounds in terms of how it is starting to inter- integrate multiple disciplinary um, approaches. And I'm sure it's the same in a lot of other sports as well. So I'm really keen to maybe share some of your insights and get some more insight on exactly what it means to actually 
repair a broken athlete. Now, what is performance <laughs> to you? I mean, if, I think performance can be measured in so many different ways, sometimes from a physical standpoint, sometimes from a mental standpoint, and in some cases, a collaboration of the two. So maybe mm-hmm. just start with that. Well, I think, um, you know, it's 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 been a lifetime process. And as I've gone through my career, the industry itself has changed um, in leaps and bounds. And uh, each nation or part on this earth sort of has its own timeline for how it's changed or how it's modified over time. For me, um, you know, I came into the industry in a time where um, the worlds of therapy, or first of all, physical performance training was in its infancy. Uh, it had sort of grown up in, um, in the United States in sort of the uh, NCAA uh, sort of format and then National Strength and Conditioning so- Association, which is kind of regarded internationally as kind of like the the center point of of how people got certified as strength coaches that that kind of genesis genesis itself out of the 70s and 80s of of football training and ncaa athlete training and um so you know i was kind of um just beginning uh, in the late 80s kind of getting introduced to that stuff and, and learning about strength coaching and it was becoming an actual you know uh profession that people could earn an income from, but it was in its infancy really in my industry. And I'm sure probably the same in England uh, as well. And then at the same time, you had therapy, which is a little older practice in different formats and uh, led by the physical therapy world, but then you had the athletic training world. So these two worlds, by the time I was kind of getting into them, were kind of they were bubbling, but they had not really become big things yet. And they were starting to become big cultural elements of, of how athletes performed. And so the 90s and 2000s is when both of those really exploded. But they were both still, uh, I would say, relatively siloed. Um, you know, you became a therapist or you became a strength coach. And uh, the two sides didn't really see eye to eye. And fundamentally, they have different narratives. The, the strength conditioning professional is basically trying to, you know, improve and help an athlete perform by overreaching and they protect that athlete through the sense of their being able to be higher performers the therapist looks at the their narrative is i want to i want to help this athlete succeed by protecting them helping them not get injured preventing injury etc so the narratives kind of don't relate to one another on on paper so it means that you need to sort of have a better empathy and understanding of each other. And what I've recognized over time, and you mentioned mental performance is, um, you know, at the beginning of this adventure, and you're starting to see it change now a little bit more, all of these call them professional domains of practice built their silos. Like this is how you create expertise. You, you go to university, you do your master's, you PhD, they built the science around it. So you have the science of strength conditioning, the science of medical and therapy, the science of mental preparation. And they were these hallowed silos, but the fundamental reality is a human being is not a whole bunch of silos. <laughs> a human being is, is an interactive system really overseen by the neurological system. And so mental is non-dissociative of physical, like they're just, they're symbiotic. And if one is not working, we see that all the time. An athlete is not in the right mindset. They're not going to perform at the right level, et cetera. So I'm at a point where in my career now, my goal is to sort of integrate those three elements, the the mental, the physical, the, the, the neurological, all of that into one sort of hybrid model that people understand 
that when you're helping an athlete perform, whether they're, it's to avoid injury or to perform, they're essentially the same thing. It, they're just different ends of a, of a continuum. And I love the way you put it that way, because ultimately, I think we we have definitely fallen into a, um, a situation where, depending on what your discipline is, you can't really focus too much on that and kind of become tunnel visioned in some ways. So I guess, mm-hmm. you know, for, for the people that are listening to this, where where do you start in terms of do we go down the mental route first? Is the physical performance route first? It, it, where where does that where does that conversation even begin? And then, you know, I'm, I'm really starting to think on a wider spectrum here in terms of the audience, in particular on this podcast. Um how they begin to think about applying some of this stuff in their own work and um, what considerations maybe they can or can't make, because obviously not everyone is going to have the access to um, necessarily the expertise, but in some cases just the resources around it to make sure that they can tap into all of this stuff effectively. So, you know, where would you go with that? Right. Well, it's a great question. And I mean, at the end of the day, I think what you're looking to do is create specialized generalists. So you have to, at some point, sort of pin the tail on the donkey and say, I'm going to do this. This is where I'm going to I'm going to sort of plant my flag and be a, a, a specialist or I'm going to have a higher order of understanding and knowledge in this sort of spectrum. Um, but the failure proposition is not understanding the other systems and recognizing and, inter- and and interacting and having the opportunity to to understand what it else how another person sees the same problem and i think this is not this is true of all kinds of elements of life this is one of the reasons why we have so much um distrust and disjointedness in society today is simply we don't understand each other if i'm talking to somebody from the uk who's who's grown up with i don't know maybe parents of indian descent and i'm a canadian with parents of francophone descent we don't we don't we didn't grow up the same we don't see things the same problem with the same set of eyes or the same perspective that doesn't mean that either one of us is right we just need to understand one another instead of yelling at each other and it's the same thing in in the performance industry it's if I'm working with a mental preparation professional, I need to understand how do they come at a problem? What is it they see about that problem? And they need to share with me how they're looking at that problem and vice versa. I have to show them how I look at a problem. And then we kind of go, okay, well, here's where we see eye to eye. Here's where we divest, but at least I understand the proposition of what they're going through. We just don't, we we plead ignorance to that too much. And then we get into our kind of egocentric state of, well, I, I am the specialist in this, get out of my kitchen. It's not about that. It's just about the empathy, professional empathy that we need to have amongst each other to understand what we're all doing. And when one of us maybe takes precedent over the other, you know. And, and I, I guess, you know, I mean, I, I totally, I totally get where you're coming from. I fully agree with the, the concept of obviously having that professional empathy to understand, right. There's many ways to skin this cat. Where can we see some alignment? When, and let's use that as a starting point, essentially. Um, how would you prioritize that? Because obviously you're talking there about, you know, physical performance, again, mental performance and, um, you know, the neurological part as well. Um, and I think one thing's for certain, especially in the world of, you know, the the industry that I'm in and, and the experiences I've had is I think sometimes you can get bogged down too heavily around if it's the physical side and turn around the biomechanical aspects of it and maybe mm-hmm. detaching that from the actual the interaction of the of the sport itself and what that means for the athlete mm-hmm. but also from a mental standpoint it's how much you know if at all any in this in this aspect are you to, to take into consideration how those biomechanical factors then 
subsequently impact performance, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if all of this was easy, um, we'd all be making gajillions of dollars making it easy, right? But it's not. I mean, it's it's a complicated concept. And if if we're talking about, you know, um, English football at a performance level, whether that's an academy level or getting into the, the different levels of professional uh, league, um, for example, it comes down to your intake process. And your intake process has to be something that the entire your entire um, knowledge um, group has has contributed to. And the way I sort of the essence of way the way I look at it is um, we have to establish uh, a working athlete back bank account. And we have to understand that, if if we use money as a term that associates itself to time and energy, uh, as in this example, uh, an athlete may have a hundred pounds of of performance money in their bank account. Okay, so that means that they have a hundred pounds to to allocate towards mental prep, therapy, uh, performance on the pitch, all these different things. Okay, so then um, each one of the practitioner professionals has to have a stewardship of that bank account and recognize they can't just withdraw whatever they want to withdraw. They have to understand what they're withdrawing is associated to an end game that you have. So if we take a, 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 a standard model of, of preparation of, of an athlete, well, the um, technical coach might need 30 pounds. The strength conditioning coach might need 20 pounds. The mental preparation coach might need 100, uh, you know, 10 pounds, et cetera, et cetera. As we go along, the physical therapy side might need 20 pounds for this athlete to be successful. So first of all, we need to know what that budget is. And as a pr practitioner, I need to know what my budget is. So if I do it the reverse and I say, what is it, Yasser, you need to make this athlete Say, say you're a performance professional and I say to you, okay, in order for this athlete to be the best they can be, how much, how much money do you need to withdraw from the bank account? Well, if I say it to you like that, you're going to go, what is the ideal? Okay. So if I don't give you constraints of how much money's in the bank account or how much you know we can afford, you're going to say, Scott, in order for me to do a great job, it's 50 pounds. So you don't even realize you've just withdrawn 50% of what's in that athlete bank account, right? So first of all, we need to understand what's the budget. Two, you have to understand that you're working under constraints like everybody else. And then lastly, through our intake process, we have to define what the priorities are. So at, if our intake process is good, it tells us where the gaps are. We should have a gap-centric prior model that allows us to understand his this player player a's gap is in their mental performance spectrum player b's gap is in their physical performance spectrum player c's problem is in their um, uh, energy systems problem player d's problem is a technical delivery problem okay so these are the different problems that these this athlete ha these athletes have so then when we go back to our bank account i say to yasser this guy has a performance problem, you get 50 pounds. This guy over here doesn't, you get 10 pounds. So now the program you're going to develop for athlete A with 50 pounds and the guy with athlete B that with 10 pounds is going to be different. But you now have to have respect for the fact that his problem is mental performance and he's dedicating and, and the mental performance practitioner is taking precedent over what you've got to do. We don't do that enough. What we do is we have a we de generally intake athletes to, to a degree on a performance spectrum, 
that's changed over time to now we have medical exams and things like that. But we don't actually sit down and go, okay, what, what are the true gaps as a team? So coach, mental prep, da, da, da. what do you see as the gaps in this athlete? And then what does take priority for this athlete to be able to perform? When you start having conversations like that, then we can also say, okay, what's our budget allocation to this and for what amount of time? Right. So are we in the beginning of an off season where we can take time to work on these these measured attributes because they're important? But or are we at the beginning of a season where it doesn't really matter what the problem is? We have to play games right now. And so he technically has to be ready. So regardless of the gap, we still have to deliver on the pitch. Right. So that's the way I kind of look at it. I don't know if that's helpful, but. No, definitely is helpful. So Scott, I love the analogy there in terms of the bank account piece. I think the the thing that I'm thinking now is here. You talked about professional empathy and understanding that obviously everyone's going to essentially have a role to play in this process. You talked a little bit around recognizing essentially where on the journey we are, what stage of the journey is in terms of the the seasonal aspect of it. The consideration I'm thinking in my head now, um, and I'm, I'm trying to apply some business sense to this, is what do we do if we're in a situation where we recognize there is a value for this we need to put a budget towards this but maybe the expertise don't essentially quit you know are not equivalent to what the value is that we're putting on it or right. rather the budget that we're putting towards it we're blowing it in some ways or undercompensating in some ways because the value that we're going to get from the individual delivering that aspect of things might not be equivalent to that. If that. Does that make sense? Sure. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, every, every organization, just like every business has its own constraints and, you know, we, we'd all like to open a, a cafe with all the best machines and the best, uh, you know, all the different uh, right people and the right staff, but you know, that's not what business is like. So uh, fundamentally um, again, you have to go back as an organization and say, from a prioritization standpoint, what are our our most important or key performance indicators and key performance elements of of an athlete being successful on the pitch and the team being successful together? So tip, typically, <laughs> and this is probably why, you know, the performance industry and the coaching industry um, sometimes uh, get get at loggerheads is the coaches will tell you, well, they need to practice and they need to play and they need to do these drills and all these things need to happen for them to be successful. They can be in the gym doing all this stuff with, you know, weights and they can be over there doing physical therapy. But at the end of the day, if they're not touching the ball, there's no, you know, there's no, there's no football happening. And I don't fundamentally disagree with that at the end of the day. Like uh, you are, this is about playing the game. This is about being able to deliver yourself on the pitch and be successful. And we have come along as a performance industry and sort of said, hey, we've got this fantastic computer, guys. Uh, why don't you use it? And they're kind of like, well, um, you know, it's too expensive. We don't have enough time. It takes up too much time and it doesn't allow us to do the things we want to do. So at the end of the day, um, you, you have to have, that's the discussion you have to have. And, and that's probably, 
the industrial frustration mechanism when you start looking at coaching staffs and performance staffs and how they integrate with one another and how they recognize where the prioritization needs to be and who is the the, the last decider. Um, and fundamentally, most of the time in, in performance organizations, I mean, you're starting to see this more and more now. They're hiring people who oversee the entire performance and medical zone. But typically up until probably about 10 years ago, it it wasn't really overseen. And the only person sort of managing the hen house was the coach and or the individual practitioner. So it's become now the performance director, or the, the VP of performance in sports medicine to, to kind of run that kitchen and, 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 and play with the coaches around how they're going to do that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, as an organization, if you have a healthy organization, everybody's talking to one another and there is somebody clearly in leadership who decides we have to allocate the biggest amount of money to this and then the next this, and then the next this, mm. and the next this, and you do your best. This is where, for me, when I look at true professional sports, the and I've worked in them, the biggest frustration is that, you know, you have people who buy professional sports teams who don't fund them to the degree that they should be funded to have true success. So, you know, it's like if you look at F1 racing, you know, who's going to win? Well, the top three teams decide because they're the ones with the biggest budget they put all the money in da, 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 da. and so interestingly enough last couple of years they've started saying well everybody only gets so much money right and i'm sure there's ways of working around it but at the end of the day they could see that what they were creating was an environment where you know the winners would win because they had more money so mm. um it, it isn't always money that solves the problem but most certainly if money is constraining your ability to engage good practitioners or good people or to develop good communication strategies then then it is a it is a constraint to your success yeah definitely so i guess you know from a different perspective then um let's assume the budget is 100 and not not everyone's got the hundred available to them, or rather they've got a hundred available to them, but they're what they're going after isn't costing them a hundred, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. In what ways would you say the people in the building already can be supported in terms of you know maybe building on their current skill sets? And and I I bring it back to the point of having <clears throat> what you you know essentially someone at the top of the top of the program, right, and someone overseeing everything um surely there's a there's a conscious there's a consideration around where their experience lies and where you know how much insight they've got around different aspects because obviously there might be some sort of bias there as well right and obviously you know mm -hmm. i'm not asking you to necessarily speak to what the biases could be but um how much consideration well, be placed on that yeah I know, I know where you're sort of going with this and i think at the end of the day like this is this is an area of in, in my later career now as an area of focus for me um, and I'm trying to instigate in organizational, uh, frameworks is <clears throat> this is what I believe. I don't know that anybody, how many people actually believe in it, but fundamentally I believe that, um, most organizations, what they do is they go and buy st stock professionals. So they say, we need an uh, athletic trainer. Here's an athletic trainer from the minor league team. They have XYZ uh, ability come in. Boom, you're our head trainer. Oh, we need this mental professional pr preparation. What's his resume? Did it come on in, be a part of our staff. So they assemble, assemble this stock group of people. Some have better resumes, lesser resumes, da, 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 da. they all have different resumes. But there's actually nobody saying, okay, 
how while you're in this organization are you going to develop so what is what is our developmental fabric for our coaching staff our performance staff our nutrition staff and how are they going to grow over the next five ten years as an org everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Organizational team. What are their gaps? What are the things they need to grow within and how do they interrelate with one another? So how do we bring them together, make them talk to one another? Again, this empathic concept I talked about beginning also requires you to steward an environment where people actually are, are brought together to share. So I get to learn how the nutrition practitioner thinks when they have a problem that they have to solve. Other, I can't read their mind. And I certainly don't have a lot of time to go over and ask them 37 questions all the time. So you have to create an environment for that to propagate and develop, which nobody does. So fundamentally, everybody relies on the stu- the, the technical pro- professionals making it happen. Mm. And then the problem with that is that their bias is to, to bias towards the work they have to get done today, which is the normal thing of everybody. They've got a, I, I call it the, the circus effect. We, you right. know, a, a professional sports team, let's get into the town that we're in. We're in Manchester this week. Boom. The tent goes up, the animals come out, the, the, tra- you know, we take the tickets to the front door, we run the show and then we leave, you know, there's no debrief. There's no sense of how are we all working together? We just make the circus happen. And then when the circus finishes, it's run the end of the season, everybody goes their different directions. And fundamentally, if you're going to build really solid performance models, you have to have a system by which everybody's developing. Their gaps have been understood. They're recognizing those gaps. They're growing. And so over a five-year period, you build this incredible staff that really synthesizes with one another. But that's a rare animal in the in the in the world of human performance. Yeah, I, I think it's fascinating because you know a lot of the work that I do is in, in coach development, and some of the debates I've been having recently with other with other coach developers is that it's, you know there's almost four types of uh, four types of practitioner, if you like. Um, and I'm speaking from a coaching perspective, in my observations rather than a generic one. But it'd be great to get your insights on this as well. And that you've got those that are not really interested in development; they're just happy to have a role. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, those that uh, say they want development because they think it's the right thing to say in order to help them get a role. Right. Um, those that say they want development and do not want to improve, but they don't put the work in. And then, you know, you almost, you can take them to the water, but they're never going to drink it, mm. but they're happy at the side of the water. And those that are actually genuinely cur- you know, curious, they want to develop, they want to engage in that process. So, I mean, it'd be really interesting to get your perspective on this in, in terms of, how do you get more of those, right? How do you get more of those guys who are, who are genuinely curious and genuinely inside? And, you know, those ones that you've taken to the water, how do you get them to actually drink it? Because that's the, that's the key part here, right? In what you're saying is that you, you want to create a culture and an environment of people actually wanting to develop with one another uh, rather than um, at the expense of one another. Mm-hmm. 
Well, if, if, if we take number one, your first guy out of the picture with the person who really just doesn't give a crap and is basically there to, to get a, a sweater, um, you know, that, that, uh, you need to filter those guys out from the beginning. But I think if we take that person out of the picture and we look at everybody's on a spectrum of how much do they want to put in, um, that's the same as, uh, your players, <laughs> You could you could say the same you could name the same four players. You're not going to see player number one in professional football because they just don't they weed themselves out. But the rest of them are on a spectrum of how much you know effort do they put in and how much do they want it and how much do they you know go the, go beyond. And so, how do you make a team that's successful out of that spectrum of players? Because you know as well as I do, every team on earth has a spectrum like that. Um, that comes down to leadership and coaching and inspiration, right? How do you get all the players on the same team working together and recognize some of them have faults and weaknesses and how do you buffer those and, and overcome them? Um, and, and what does somebody's personality mean to the room versus their acumen, right? The, the problem too, in the performance spectrum, um, is, there are two, like, and this is very um, simplistic, but there are really two different elements of it, right? There's the um, knowledge paradigm and there's, or, or, or as people like to call the um, EQ versus IQ concept. Uh, what is your knowledge paradigm and what is your emotional quotient? So a lot of people in professional sport or, or team sport dynamics they get leaned on on the EQ side because we want to create an environment where there are no distractions. The players are the focus and you are part of the team. So quite often, even in the hiring process, like I, I'll always remember, I went, I was working for the New York Rangers uh, professional hockey team in North America. And I was, I had an opportunity to go work for the Montreal Canadiens, uh, which is a, a story. He's like the Manchester United of, of professional hockey teams. And I went in to talk to the general manager and the general manager for my interview asked me one question. He just said, um, how do you get along with the guys in the room, Scott? And that's all he cared about. It was like, you're, we don't want distractions in our space. So if that is your highest precedent, then, you know, you're, you're really favoring EQ and you're favoring team dynamic over IQ. And so, that's why I come back to the professional development piece, because then if then I think you can teach people to be smarter, you can't always teach EQ very well. So if you hire character and then you build capacity, um, the question then becomes how, to your point of the four characters, how do you inspire the ones who don't have the propensity to put their effort in? And or how do you weed them out over time? That's a that's that that is a, a lesson for leadership and inspiration, right? Um, it's really drawing people up. It's inspiring. It's creating a magnetic framework that people want to be better, that they see the benefit in being better, and they're um, finally remunerated for being better. <laughs> that's the last part in the kitchen. Is we often want these really high IQ, high IQ professionals in our in our professional sport environment, but then what are we willing to pay them? Oh, well, you know, like I've always, I've always analogized it. You know, what's, what's a basic uh, in England, what's a basic sort of oil change um, company? Like where would you go get your car change oil kind of company? Basic. Yeah. Street, street. Yeah. Quick fit. Okay. So what we do is we, we, we put a team together of F1 cars um, and then we hire a bunch of quick fit, uh, fit mechanics. 
Okay. Because they're easier to deal with. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you, you want people. So because they're cheaper and they're easier, well, you want F1 engineers. So pay them, right? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it makes complete sense. I think it's it's um, I can't remember where I heard it, but basically said, you know, if if you're, if you're down the marketing route, you know, you're gonna get two of these three things. You can have it fast, you can have it cheap, you can have it done at high quality. You can you can't have all three. You can have two. If it's fast and cheap, the quality ain't gonna be great. Right. If it's fast and high quality, it ain't gonna be cheap. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and 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 so on and so forth. You know, so I think it, it definitely it rings true here. I guess, you know, coming back to coming back to the initial piece that we talked about around the performance and how, how do you then, you know, you you talked about looking at really profiling the individuals. It, 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 what's the framework that you might use to do that? Um, I would fundamentally. Sorry about that. Yeah, I think you have to start with the end in mind. What is the end product you're trying to create? You know, like, so what are all the acumen expressions, the attributes, uh, both physical, mental, technical, tactical, et cetera, of an athlete? What are the key performance indicators of that sport, et cetera? So you start with the end in the mind. What is what is the outcome you want to create with your athlete? Um, you then uh, also look at what are the uh, spectrums of differentiation within the, the professional um athlete so you know what do your midfielders need that your um, forwards don't need that your defenders don't do need that your goalies do need so what are kind of the individual differences propositions of of position dynamics on the field um i'm not at a football is not my number one sport that i work with so i don't i beg to to to, to not be completely knowledgeable about all those things but mm-hmm. in hockey as an example there's there are definite differences between forwards defensemen and, and very different differences between a goaltender so once you've had that conversation about you know what is what does the end product look like what are all the component parts of making that end product then you have to then say okay well how do we inspect the vehicle you know Mm. how do we inspect the vehicle well we have uh, a physical inspection process we have a mental inspection process we have a character inspection process we have a technical tactical inspection process etc all these inspection processes that we do that set the the table for where the person's baseline is right now. Okay. And then after we come out of that, we we have a dialogue as an organization about each of those characters and we go, okay, character A has an issue in these two quadrants, character B has these issues. Now, how are we going to change those things and how are we going to monitor those things and how, what are we going to do? And usually what happens is everybody has some variation therein of this, uh, but as I said at the beginning of this conversation, most of the time it hasn't been created with everybody acknowledging what everybody mm. else is doing. What the what the true um, um, prioritization elements are um, by position, by uh, you know age, all these different things. Like you know, you even look at the differentiation between you know you're in you're in um, coach development, athlete development, et cetera. Like what an athlete comes in at 18, 19 years old to a pro team um, needs to learn and be comparatively speaking to the 30 year old are, are completely different things. You know, how do we train them, treat them, take care of them? All these things need to be differentiated. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I think you make a great point. That, and you know, just to kind of really summarize what you've just said there and just to clarify my understanding that essentially you're saying, have, you know, you need to have profiles of what you're expecting to kind of 
essentially you know a person's specification for each role that in the team essentially or yeah. in the organization in some ways and I think you made a great point there that obviously that person spec might be look very different for if it's an 18 year old that we're bringing in as opposed to if it's a ready-made 30 year old yeah. um the 30 year 30 year old might have all the desirables already mm-hmm. whereas you know really what you're saying is we strip it all back what are the essentials that we need mm-hmm. what are the essentials that we need what are the essentials that we can agree on as, as an organization and it has to be considered from a i guess a multidisciplinary aspect in that respect but i'm really interested to kind of get a bit more insight around the, you know if you can give me an example maybe of, of what that inspection process might look like for, for you know let's use hockey you know casino that's the sport you, you're most familiar with and well, I, you know, I know soccer well enough or f- football well enough to sort of elaborate on this. Let's 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 say, um, you know, we've got two uh, midfielders coming in and and we've looked at what they need to be able to do. Well, obviously, they need to, you know, passing is an acumen that they need to be very solid at. Uh, they need to be able to change direction, put the brakes on. Um, you know, they they have to have a great spatial awareness. Uh, they have to be able to play both ends of the pitch, et cetera, that kind of thing. So we know what kind of their aerobic capacity and their sprint dynamic capacity and their physical change of direction abilities need to be. So first and foremost, we're going to have a baseline assessment of the way they move to give us sort of a a big picture. Then we're going to look at, well, what are some of the very um, specific movement characteristics that they need to be able to do well? They need to be able to stop on a dime, inside cut, backside look, et cetera, all these kinds of things. So do, do they have X, Y, Z? You know, I'm, I'm going to go through the, I just did a, a teaching session on the weekend. This is what I do in reconditioning is looking at video and saying, what are all the physical attributes this person has, so uh, needs to have to be able to deliver. So you're going to have the idea of what is their real dynamic? What is ideal? Ideal is built on a premise of me discussing with you, the coach, how, how do you like a, an athlete to turn, you know, around <laughs> or it, it, to move there's also there's also another consideration here, though, right? It's surely that um, from a, from a coaching perspective, or just from a, a, a an external perspective beyond the athlete themselves, is that we could essentially be pigeonholing them, right? And In what, that, like what that they have to have, I mean? Uh, yeah, to an extent, but also ra- rather than you know, maybe I'm I'm just throwing this out there. Would it not be better to maybe for us to consider what do we want them to be able to achieve? Yeah, that's. I think. I think I'm saying that, but maybe not. Not bringing it across eloquently enough. You have to know what the end product looks like. Yeah. What the end product movements look like, etc. Um, and all the dimensions of that, and recognize then this is what is the ideal model. This is what they do. Um, this is what. Um, what is absolutely necessary. Like you can't play midfielder if you can't do this move or you know, reach this speed or play for this long, we should have these kind of, these these are the lines in the sand that if you want to play at the premiership level, you need to have these, these different attributes. And we've kind of distilled down what those are. They, they can be technical, tactical, physical, mental, all these different attributes. Right. And so then what we're doing is we're establishing a, a, what a, what the, the, the bottom line is what they have, this is our gap analysis and what is ideal. We're, we're working towards a theoretical ideal, but what it doesn't matter where we get to. We just need to know what the absolute base is. So we don't want players on our pitch if they can't make this kind of move or they can't change, they can't kick the ball this far or they can't do this kind of thing. And if we do accept them as part of the organization, then the things like – 
this is, I guess, at the end of the day, it's all an awareness proposition. Okay. So you may go through this piece and say, these are our top 10 things that our midfielders need to be able to do. Now, you might evaluate your your midfielder on your team and none of them have all 10, okay? Some have seven, some have six, some have eight, some have da-da-da. So bottom line is one, your, your recognition of what may be possible or impossible for a particular athlete at this stage in their life. So you mentioned the 19-year-old versus the 30-year-old. Likely a 30-year-old, I'm not going to change the way they change direction at this point. The 19-year-old, I might. So then we have to ask ourselves, what are the things that 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 they bring to the table that allow them to be still a part of this team because they have all these X attributes that are really important to us. They're just missing this one. That's that's a conversation amongst you know coaches of yeah. you know what what we what we because we never have perfect beings on the field. No, hundred percent. Right? I think a, a real key thing that kind of really you know interests me in what you're saying is a lot of this is really about talent potential, isn't it? Yeah, it's about sure. identifying potential in talent and, and and what that could potentially look like. And I know that there's there's often discussions had between people who are considered scouts or are talent identifiers um, and the difference of opinion and viewpoints they might have from a coaching perspective. Um, if, we, if, you know, if the coach was observing some of these things. So it's really interesting to obviously get your thoughts on it, understand the framework in which you kind of operate and essentially have a player profile, know what these, you know, have the job spec, know what the essentials are, know what the desirables are, where do they sit on that spectrum, but also recognizing that what level of experience do you want to hire someone to do this role and recognizing where they fit in that and it's ticking those boxes. I think it's a great way to look at it, but yeah, I, I think, you know, co coming back to the performance piece then. So, you know, one of the key things you said right at the top of this is how to, how to repair a broken athlete. Tell me about that. Tell me about what, what, what do you consider a broken athlete to be in, in, in its entirety? And, and how does one begin on that process? It's, um, the same thing. That's why that's why I ascribe to this belief system because fundamentally, if I have an athlete in front of me, like if you said if you called me up tomorrow and said, Scott, can you do a consult on athlete A with our team? I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna ask you, what are all your needs for this athlete? What does he need to be able to do? We're gonna look at video, we're gonna look at what he was doing before he was hurt, what he's doing now, etc. And then we're gonna ask what is the injury? What is he dealing with right now? What is, what is the etiology of that problem? But I want to figure out through my gap analysis, what are the gaps that are driving the problem? What is the causal demon in the injury? Because injuries are outcomes of a series of dominoes falling. Now, you could have a very significant mechanical injury where somebody came with his boot and smoked a guy in the knee and, you know, blew his knee out. But, you know, I'm talking more about, you know, the guy blew his ACL out pivoting on the grass or he's got this recurrent hamstring strain or whatever it is. Fundamentally, in order to solve that problem, I need to know what the matrix looks like of all the things that he needs to be able to do. And then I have to look at him and say, what can't he do? that could be contributing to why he has this problem. And fundamentally in the medical paradigm, what we end up doing too much of is diagnosing the problem by naming the problem versus naming the reason why it's there. And so then we medicate, treat, manage the problem versus understand that this is the cause of the problem. We have to eliminate this or fix this gap. When you fix that gap, then all of a sudden the stress on the tissues starts to, deregulate right 
Um, and then there's also, there's a, there's a mental and neurological profile within all of that construct as well, but it's always fundamentally understanding what is the end product you want to create? What is the gap in their ability right now that's causing this problem? Then how are we going to fix that gap or how are we going to mitigate that gap? You know, you might have an athlete who's broken his ankle three times and he has two pins in it. And so he's never going to make that le that left footer cut to come back or something very well. And so that might be a problem. So how do we make him give him more robust knees, hips, trunk, et cetera? So when he has to break, even though he he's not doing it the best way, he's doing it in a way that at least he's prepared to do with everything above that joint that's never going to give him the range he needs, as an example. 100%. I'm really conscious of time of your time as well. So I, I, just, I just wonder if you've got any key kind of things that you want people to take away off the back of this conversation. And you certainly had my mind blowing already. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just think, you know, uh, I've been in the industry for a long time. And I think we, we all struggle with the same series of problems. And really, they come down to communication, um, understanding one another, um, ego, putting our egos down. And recognizing that our prob the problems we're trying to solve, um, everybody's you know everybody's in it to solve it. They just without any stewardship, they're going to do their best to solve it themselves in their own way with whatever tools they have. And so, if you don't have a central belief system, stewardship, leadership, etc., um, a way for everybody to know where they fit on that paradigm. Um, people's bias is going to be towards their character. And you named the four different kinds of characters, so to speak. So the person who really is well-educated and, and believes they're, they're important in the process is going to grab hold of that project and do the best they can. And then sometimes to the disregard of others, the person who just wants to be the team player is just not going to stick their neck out and maybe do the ba the base that they have to do just because they're worried about losing their job or not being there tomorrow, et cetera. So they need to have somebody who favor who brings the best out of them for that high profile person pulls their ego down and says, Hey, you have to communicate with everybody else for the person who's kind of got the low ego and doesn't know where to bring it up. You can be better. Da, 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 da. That's leadership, right? No, hundred percent. And I think so. the one key thing that came from me in this conversation and you didn't even actually say it until just now was everything's about clarity and communication. Yep. Clarity and yep. communication. So, um, Scott, no, again, thank you for your time. I just know if you want to just let everyone know where they can maybe get in touch with you and find out a little bit more about the work that you do in your podcast, maybe. Yeah, I have a podcast called Leave Your Mark. It's on Apple, Spotify, all those different places. I talk to all kinds of human performance professionals in the world about uh, their life stories and journeys. Uh, don't get a lot into technical, but get sometimes into philosophical. And then I also have a company called ReconditioningHQ.com, which is the method of, of and system of practice of bringing the worlds of therapy and performance together that my wife and I teach, hopefully all over the world. Maybe one day in England, we'll come over there and do Definitely. Give us a shout when you're over, man. Scott, it's yeah. been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. 
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.